It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie Thursday morning, the 27th of June. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. TDs today will debate a government motion which could see 152 soldiers involved in military action as part of an EU battle group led by Germany in a force of 1,500 troops with participation from Austria, the Czech Republic, Croatia and the Netherlands. The motion is certain to pass as it has the support of Fianna Fáil. But does it compromise Irish neutrality? Or did Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil rip up Irish neutrality last week when they decided to send troops to Mali. Irish neutrality is protected because of how the so-called triple lock prevents troops going into conflict, but the triple lock was achieved so as to make it possible to send army rangers to Mali. The conditions under which the defence forces may participate on overseas peace support operations are referred to as the triple lock. The operation must be authorised are mandated by the United Nations. It must be approved by government. It must be approved by way of resolution of Dáil Éireann, where the size of the Defence Forces contribution is more than 12 persons. MONUSMA, which is the United Na- uh, National uh, Multidimensional, multidimensional uh, Integrated uh, Stabilisation Mission in Mali, is authorised under Security Council Resolution UNSCR 2100 of April 2013. The Government, at its meeting on the 11th of June last, granted approval uh, for the Defence Forces Oglin Aheron participation in Manusma mission. The proposed deployment, which is due to take place in September of this year, 2019, will be drawn primarily from the Army Ranger Wing and the deployment will uh, total 14 uh, personnel. Dahl approval will complete the triple lock and will allow for the required training and other preparatory arrangements to be put in place over the coming months in advance of a proposed September deployment. That's the Minister for Defence, Paul Kyo, outlining why the troops will participate in this MINUSMA 
programme because it has been authorised in three different ways under the triple lock. It's a a UN programme. It's been authorised by the government and received Dáil approval last Thursday. Let's talk about this with Angus O'Snoddy, who's Sinn Féin's spokesperson on defence. And a very good morning to you and thank you indeed for joining us. You said this breaches everything that stands from uh, uh, our point of view in terms of neutrality, that this is not peacekeeping, but a peace enforcement mission. Yes, this is what's called the Chapter 7 mission. The UN has different uh, standards for different missions abroad. So, for instance, the most uh, popular ones in Ireland uh, over the years have been Chapter 5 or Chapter 6, which is the likes of Unifil in the Lebanon, kind of which is strictly peacekeeping, whereas uh, Chapter 7 allows kind of for countries uh, to uh, go on UN duties, which is a lot further advanced, as in uh, peace enforcement, conflict stabilization, and uh, targeting uh, militias or uh, Islamists, as, as, as has been indicated in this case. And uh, if, if people don't want to be, sides. if people don't want to act peacefully, how do you enforce peace? Is it with guns and tanks and planes? Well, if, if, if you decide to take sides, you are no longer neutral. And that's, that's the key part of being a neutral country. Because there is a conflict in Mali and we're taking one side. Yeah, there has been an ongoing conflict in, in, in Mali and that whole region since uh, colonialists uh, from Europe went and conquered different par- parts of it, divided it up and divided up the tribes. Uh, but in, in particular, in recent years, uh, there's been a conflict there um, which kind of has... Uh, spilled out into various countries around it, but uh, which the French weren't happy about because they were for- former colonial masters and they took a decision uh, to uh, send their own troops in, but also appeal to the UN uh, mm. for backing. And because it's a, 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 a new country, isn't it? Really only established it in 1960 or, or, or so and yeah. was part of French Sudan. It is, and in fact, if you look at some of the tribes, people might remember uh, kind of old, old films about the French Foreign Legion, so the Tuareg uh, tribe uh, is split now between five different countries, and they would have been the ones who would have fought against the French Foreign Legion. That shows the length of time the French have uh, had an influence and uh, an, an interest in the area and still have. Uh, a lot of it is to do with mineral resources, like a lot of Africa, uh, the exploitation by European countries in particular of African uh, mineral resources and protecting that to try and protect uh, their their benefits rather than the African countries' benefits. So has the triple lock protected Irish neutrality? Well, it hasn't if we're sending uh, troops on uh, peace enforcement missions, and that's that, that's the view that I had uh, kind of in, in, in the various treaties, the EU treaties, which uh, kind of were signed up to, kind of when the triple lock um, was uh, proposed as a way around the first mm. uh, no vote, um, and uh, uh, and that's what's been happening today, or just last week when we we signed this. But kind of the other interesting thing here is there's already. Uh, 20 Irish soldiers in Mali, kind of without any authorisation by the Dáil. Um, uh, and and that, that's a worrying thing, is that there is mechanisms that the government have found to bypass the triple mm. lock. At least in this case, they put it to the Dáil, albeit that uh, the Dáil didn't reject it, as I, I would have hoped, given the history of this, this region and what exactly this 
uh, UN mission is intended to do. Because the vote in, in the Dáil last week was the third lock in the triple lock that's needed uh, to send uh, the 14 army rangers to Mali. Uh, and I take it that uh, their mission will be different to the 20 who are already there because it, it required the triple lock. Yeah, well, kind of, this, this is an elite uh, unit, and in fact, what, what, what the minister said in his, in his part is that uh, the, the Chapter 7 mission means that the UN has charged the mission with the role of peace enforcement. Um, so he, he specifically said that. He also said that kind of the Army Ranger Wing will be uh, gathering information and intelligence uh, in the region and that it will be part of a Special Operations Forces unit in this mission. Um, because the mission isn't just a small mission. This, there's 13,000 or 14,000 uh, UN soldiers there. There's also uh, another 4,000 separate in, the, in a French mission, their own, their own mission. And then there's a, the separate one, which is a, uh, an EU uh, training mission, which is the one that hasn't the, the dial authorization. Mm. And so there's, there's 18,000, 19,000 foreign troops in uh, Mali, as, as we seek, or will be kind of once when this most recent deployment happens. But it's a a war zone and we're taking sides, as you say. What does that mean in real terms? Will Irish troops be fired on and will Irish troops retaliate? Well, kind of, they they have have the right under this to retaliate. They have the right to act before uh, being being fired on because it's peace enforcement, um, and that that's the concern is that we then start taking sides in what is uh, a civil war in in Mali and has been ongoing. Uh, there was in the past, and there probably still is to a degree, uh, the influence of what people called is, Islamists. But in the main, this is uh, intertribal warfare, so a, a civil war. Um, and the European Union uh, and the UN is specifically taking sides uh, over of one group or over uh, the the others, um, and in many ways it's to protect those mineral resources which are coming out of that country because Mali is uh, very wealthy in terms of its mineral resources, but it's the tenth poorest country in the world. So, for instance, it import, exports mm. a third third biggest exporter of gold uh, in the world yes kind of it's the tent poorest that's kind of not 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 auguring well for its future there's something wrong there something that doesn't add up uh, unless you're french perhaps uh, and uh, this is a mission in support of the french is it well, basically, the French are the ones who have the, the, the greatest influence in this region. It's a former uh, colonial area of the French. A lot of the French companies are still located there, and it is the French who have uh, fully endorsed uh, the, the government that is uh, there now, which came about as a, a coup uh, against a, a, a former prime, prime minister who had called for uh, democratic elections. Um, so he was, he was overthrown, and then uh, the military took over and then there was a subsequent uh, election so okay. it, it isn't as clear cut as just uh, what, what, what one uh, leader taking over another there is several tribes in the area and uh, substantial ones at that how dangerous an area is it because uh, the un has had troops there for the last six years or so hasn't it yeah this is this is regarded by the un as one of the most dangerous missions uh, in the world at present uh, there's quite a quite a number of un soldiers have uh, died on active service in in, in the region and um, so it's it, it is 
kind of pro- pro- probably one of those that kind of the I, I wish the soldiers well now that they're going because kind of nobody could wish wish, wish them otherwise and hope, hope hopefully they'll have a safe, safe journey there and time there and also come back safely um, but kind of I, I I think that kind of if 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 the last number of months is anything to go by, the, 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 the violence in that region is escalating. The attacks on UN uh, soldiers and compounds and the like ha- has, has increased, uh, and there is potentially uh, going, going, going to be ca- more UN casualty, and hopefully none of those will be uh, Irish soldiers, but that is the nature mm. of being in a, in a war zone. And, and the casualty in a war zone is a fatality. 177 peacekeepers killed in five years. 16 so far this year uh, and that's already decided our troops are making their way to Mali or they will be in September because of the vote last week in the Dáil. There's another vote today on uh, another military operation that we sign up to an EU battle group. What's that about? Well, EU battle groups, they're a battalion-sized military force that can be on standby and it has to have a readiness to deploy to areas uh, dictated to by the EU. Uh, It has to have 1,500 personnel in it. So Ireland has signed up and again because of EU treaties. uh, uh, This this was flagged up um, and we were told that we were um, uh, exaggerating the effects of this. But kind of what, what... it's been requested in this case that another 152 uh, soldiers would be uh, participating in the, the German-led battle group. We'd been previously in one uh, in a number of battle groups, so that we've we've just come under different uh, leaders. We haven't been in, in in the front position of any of the battle groups thus far. But it means for 18 months they have to be on standby, kind of to be de- de- deployed to any region uh, that the EU dictates. Uh, It it also has to uh, involve training and cooperating and coordination between the countries uh, as part of that preparation. So there's a cost element involved and there's issues to do with personnel being sidetracked from what they are. And Ireland at the moment can ill afford uh, any any soldiers kind of being abroad because of the shortfall in numbers, but also this is... uh, Again, a blatant disregard of uh, the neutrality because we don't get to dictate mm. uh, what exactly and what, what what missions we will be on. Um, well, what type of missions might we be on? Because there haven't been any missions yet. Uh, the battle groups have been fully operational since January of 2007. Over a decade later, there hasn't been any military action. But if they were called into action... What type of action might we be talking about? Well, you could be talking about the likes of Mali if there's an escalation in Mali, kind of where uh, the, 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 the soldiers of the EU would go in in support of, uh, say, for instance, if the French come under sustained attack in Mali or a few UN troops, uh, rather than withdrawing them and, 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 and trying to sort it out mm. from, from a distance, uh, this, this would dictate that uh, EU troops could go in uh, to def- defend EU interests uh, in, in, in Mali or elsewhere, uh, or in, in the case of uh, conflicts around uh, the different borders of the EU. Does it mean we're members of a European army? Well, we've said that all along. The, the minister, in fact, in uh, his uh, proposal today, again, uh, says that, um, that he's... Uh, 
the, the, the it's an unfortunate term, the battle group, but everything of a, of an army exists. There is a headquarters. Uh, you have the the army as it called the battle group. You have and uh, the deployment, you have an agreement on what weapons uh, mm. to get into the future. So I don't, I don't, I don't know what else it can be called. And um, so the, the the EU Commission have said that they want to see a full EU army in place by mm. 2021. So it is coming upon us, and more and more mm. of these decisions are being taken by this government, uh, which uh, further uh, in, in, impose us into uh, a future uh, EU army. Uh, whereas we, we, we still have an opportunity. But uh, I suppose whether you call it a, an EU army or a defence agreement, whatever terms you put on it, when you couple it together with things like the operation in Mali, like our agreement uh, to deal with things like explosives in conflict areas, uh, the PESCO agreement and so on, it, it's hard to figure Ireland as a, a neutral country. It, it, it is. It's becoming more and more kind of. There are those of us who who kind of kind of hang, hanker back to Ireland have, have been, being a neutral country, um, and we would like to roll back on some of the decisions, in particular the increased militarisation of Europe, the, the spending of uh, social social monies on military projects, and then uh, the, the likes of the EU battle groups being in readiness to uh, become a peacekeeper and peace enforcing around the world uh, to 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 compare with the Russians or the the US uh, as they have become supposedly war- the world's police men or women okay. uh, and that that seems to be in the intent of an EU army uh, albeit at the moment only being called an EU battle group. Okay, well this uh, will be debated at lunchtime today. Uh, we leave it there for the moment and thank you indeed for speaking to us on the programme this morning. Sinn Féin TD and spokesperson on defence is Angus Osnuddy. Michael Reed on LMFM. Well, we've had uh, the summer economic uh, statement uh, this week, which uh, frames uh, the uh, terms for which uh, budget uh, 2020 will be set, and uh, people are setting out uh, their stalls in advance of the actual budget in October. Family Carers Ireland have uh, submitted uh, their proposals on the budget. Catherine Cox is head of communications and carer engagement with Family Carers Ireland, and on the line with us. And a very good morning to you, Catherine, and thanks for joining us here this morning. In, in conjunction with your pre-budget submission, uh, you've uh, launched uh, some research uh, which uh, is of concern, undoubtedly, to you. A, a significant increase in terms of uh, the number of people who are caring for others who are suffering from depression. Indeed. Um, thanks, Michael, for having me on. Yes, um, we conducted research actually 10 years ago. Um, with family carers um, and with the support of the College of Psychiatrists of Ireland. Um, And we did a similar report um, just this year. And as you said, unfortunately, the results are not good. Um, And we have found uh, figures such as a 70% increase in the number of carers diagnosed with depression, um, a 24% increase in carers reporting poor health in general, and a 30% increase in uh, carers uh, experiencing anxiety. Um, And the the research itself was looking at the impact of caring on a carer's health and well-being. Um, So those figures are very um, disturbing. Um, It has also shown that access to services and supports has actually gone backwards over the last 10 years also. Um, And of those carers surveyed, 83% of them did not have access to appropriate respite. So in other words, the carer is not getting a break Mm. uh, from their caring role. 
Um, so, you know, th- those figures, in a way, were not shocked because we knew things had got worse on the ground. Yeah. However, you know, how bad it has actually got is really clear from these figures. Yeah. Um, and we have seen over the last number of years, carers reaching burnout, carers not being able to continue in their role because of lack of supports and lack of services. So this is a real wake-up call, we feel, to government that if they don't put supports and services into carers, they're not going to be able to continue to provide the levels of support that they are doing in the home. And could you say all of that another way, uh, which might be that uh, most carers don't get respite and uh, as a result of that, you have all of these health problems? Absolutely, and that, that that's what it comes down to. Um, because like any of us, if we're working nonstop and we're not getting a break, you know, we're not getting our weekends off, yeah. we're not getting our night's sleep in particular, you know, how nobody can continue to function uh, without a break and without that. Mm. And that, know, that's, without that's just the physical aspect of it. Of course, uh, yeah. there's uh, the psychological and emotional aspect of it when you're watching somebody uh, who's very close to you, a, a loved one uh, who's uh, finding it very difficult themselves and you're trying to look after them. Indeed, and that's where the depression and anxiety comes in as well. Um, and, you know, most carers will look at, because they're looking after somebody else, they ignore their own health. Mm. You know, they ignore when they're not feeling well. They tend not to go to the doctor. Mm. And quite often they can't afford to go to the doctor because if they're on carers allowance mm. or if they're on low income, you know, that's another cost to them. Now, we saw the introduction of a GP visit card for carers last year in the budget, mm. but it was only for carers in receipt of the carer's allowance. And we know only one in five carers get the carer's allowance. Mm. So you, you still have a situation where there's a high number, of particularly full-time carers, yeah. um, who can't afford to go to the doctor and can't afford to look after their own health. And I, I know that you want uh, how uh, the carer's uh, allowance is granted to be reformed, uh, but uh, do you think uh, that sometimes part of uh, the problem is uh, that uh, people don't want to know you as well when you're a carer, sometimes for the right reason, sometimes uh, maybe not for the right reason. People might think, well, I don't want to go into that house. It's uh, depressing. Or they might think, oh, well, I don't want to go in there. They have enough in their hands. But the end result of all of that is that there is nothing but the sickness or the disability or the situation that you find yourself in 24-7 with this person that you're caring for. Indeed. Um, and, you know, we would say that caring should be a, care, a shared responsibility And that's with the family, the community and the state. And quite often when you have one carer, particularly if it's a female, and this Mm. tends to happen if it's one daughter maybe in a family caring for elderly parents or parent, um, quite often the rest of the family step back a little and it's left to one person. And as you said, then they say, God, you know, let them on with it now. And, Mm. you know, we don't want to be disturbing them. And, And so it becomes one person then taking on that full burden of care, really. So it should be a shared responsibility and it should be the state, the family, the community and not just one person trying to, you know, do it all on their own. Mm. Uh, And respite is... Uh, literally time off Uh, it may be a day or a couple of days off or a week off as the case may be it is or else it may be home respite where somebody is coming in maybe helping to get the person up in the morning Mm. helping them to put to bed at night and that's similar to home help hours Mm. and we know from the media in the last week that there's also a threat now to either freezing home help hours or cutting them Um, some HSEs are talking about freezing them until November because they've spent their budget. Yeah. And this is so infuriating for family carers. Like, there are already over 6,000 
people on a waiting list for home health hours. So they have been approved, assessed and approved as needing them, but there's no money there. And now we're talking about a freeze or further cuts. So to us, that cannot happen because, and we've said this, like our health services depend hugely on family carers. And you would see it collapse if family carers cannot continue to provide the care they do, but they cannot do it without support. Um, and that's financial support, but also practical support like home health, like respite, um, and, you know, and getting a break from their caring role. Right. And when you talk about four out of five carers not qualifying for the, for the carers allowance, mm-hmm. is it that they're caring for somebody on a full time basis? So of that group, so there's about 355,000 carers in this country. Um, and of that group, there's probably about 140,000 who are providing full-time care. Yet, only about 80,000 of those are getting carers allowance. So there's quite a, a number of full-time carers who are not getting the carers allowance because of the means test. Um, and that's why we're saying that the means test needs to be overhauled completely. So many carers who are providing full-time care are not getting carers allowance because their partner may be working and they're pushing them over the threshold but that person is still providing full-time care and they still have all the costs of full-time care and um, be it you know extra dietary needs of the person they're caring for their heating bills are probably higher their travel to the hospital to parking all of those things should be taken into account but they're not when they're looking at the means of the person so we need a complete reform and overhaul of the means test and ideally the means test and this is something that mm. the Labour Party brought to a debate in the Dáil last night they're calling for the means test to be abolished for carers so that if somebody can show they're providing full time care for a loved one they should get carers allowance uh, And what would that cost the state? Well we've asked this, we've actually asked we met with Minister Harris yesterday um, and Minister Doherty and we've actually asked them to do the costings for that mm. um, because it's it's difficult for us uh, to know how many people that would bring in but they would have those figures so we've asked for that figure and be interested to see what comes back but on it, that. even at that it's not an easy calculation is it because as you say you'd be entitled to the allowance which uh, if you're caring for one person I think can range from between 219 exactly. euro to 385 euro 50 but then on top of that uh, there's medical devices medical aids uh, there may be incontinence pads uh, other mm-hmm. machinery uh, there's uh, grants in, in terms of of electricity, bus passes, these other things uh, which would all have to be added on as well. Indeed, and I mean, then you also have people who may need a bathroom downstairs, housing housing adaptation grants. So it's a difficult one to to cost, but it would be certainly, and we have asked for those costings to be done. But we need to remember as well, because when we talk about how is this funded, carers save, they say, 10 billion euro every year. So the work that they do is vital for our community, for our health services. It doesn't sound like a lot of money when you say it quickly like that. Ten billion euro yeah, every year is a saving. You know, ten thousand, ten thousand million euro. Uh, <laughs> it's uh, beyond telephone numbers. Absolutely, absolutely, mm. and that's the savings they make to the state, and that's be that's outside of you know people want to be cared for in their mm. own home. It's actually stated government policy to care for people in their own home. Yet that policy is not supported with practice. And one of the things we look for in our pre-budget submission also is to end the postcode lottery of services and supports. Mm -hmm. Because in Ireland at the moment, where you live determines what you will and what you won't get. 
So in County Kilkenny, for example, there might be very good restaurants and down the road in Carlow, there's very little, if any. So we want to end that and we want a situation where every carer can access basic supports in their local community, like emergency respite, like training for their caring role when they need it, and information and support. And that actually would cost very little. That would cost about mm. 3.2 million euro per year. Now, I know 3.2 million is a, is a large figure, but when you take again into account the savings to the state, it's very little out of the budget to provide those basic supports for carers. Okay, I think you titled your pre-budget submission uh, a decade lost. Uh, from what I know of it, uh, Catherine, it's probably another decade lost uh, in terms I of. I hope the not. Campaign. I hope yeah, not. And yeah. there seems to be some. There seems to be some recognition you know, amongst government parties and certainly opposition, that this is a crisis, that this is heading very much towards a very difficult crisis if mm. we don't do something now to support carers. Okay, so, forgive me uh, for saying, remain, forgive me for uh, saying I thought that was the case a decade ago. It uh, was, it was. Right. But look, we, we have to keep going and we have to keep lobbying um, and keep yeah. pushing and trying to ensure that carers are a priority for government. Okay, thank you very much indeed for joining Thanks us so this morning. Mike. Catherine Cox, Head of Communications and Carer Engagement with Family Carers Ireland. Michael Reed on LMFM. Compassionate access uh, to cannabis uh, for medical reasons uh, where conventional treatment has failed has been signed into law by the Minister for Health, Simon Harris. Uh, It means uh, that people with MS or severe cases of epilepsy or nausea from uh, chemotherapy will be entitled to to be prescribed cannabis and to, to use cannabis for their illness. This has uh, been long campaigned for by Gino Kenny, who's a people before profit TD for Dublin Midwest and on the line. Good morning, Gino, and thanks uh, for joining us. Is it it just those three categories who will be entitled to use cannabis as a a medicine now? Yeah, just at the moment, um, under the the scheme that the Minister announced yesterday. So obviously we'd like to go much further, you know, to include other conditions, particularly around chronic pain. Um, cancer patients and p- yeah, people with chronic pain. Yeah, I mean, other conditions yeah. that, um, mm-hmm. that cannabis can be beneficial. Now, over the five-year programme, uh, other conditions can be added. So if you look at the model in Denmark, uh, chronic pain is stipulated as part of the programme. So we're hoping over the period of the time of the pilot project that, uh, you know, people that have a non-met need um, where opioids are simply not working for them, that they... Uh, can have the choice to use uh, cannabis-based products in Ireland. So mm. that's going to be another front that we're going to be campaigning for. Uh, yesterday was momentous. Um, it's usually significant uh, that cannabis-based products now can be prescribed. They can't be prescribed as of today, but they will be prescribable as in the autumn. So um, When this is signed into law? Yeah, well, mm. it's signed into law now, but... Mm. What's happening Transposed now, into law. When, yeah, yeah, the law has changed. Now they, they're looking for suppliers to supply the, the access program. And as mm. soon as that happens, then the suppliers, if they meet the criteria, then uh, will be put on, uh, the, they'll supply the access program. Okay, so uh, if you are prescribed uh, cannabis in the autumn, where will you go to get it? Well, I presume it will be consultant-led. Mm. So you have to be referred to your consultant. And the consultant will... Um, Obviously, it all depends on your obviously condition that meets the criteria. And mm. if it's, it won't be the first choice. If you have kind of basically exhausted all conventional medicine, mm. um, you will be uh, 
prescribe uh, medicinal cannabis products. And will you go to the pharmacy to get it? Though? Yes, okay, yes. Yeah, yeah. So, and what will you get? I mean, will you get a, a tablet or, or will you get uh, it, it, it all depends. the herb? Uh, you can get the herb. Um, you can get the oil. Right. Um, so it comes in many kind of... Uh, and where will the pharmacy get it? I mean, in the pharmacy in Ireland. Yeah. They'll get it from a supplier. <laughs> well, oh, I know yeah. a few people who get cannabis from suppliers, but I take it it's yeah. a different supplier. They'll get, they'll get yeah. it from. I don't see. Mm. We don't know which suppliers is going to be mm. supplying the access program. Um, these are, I mean, these are huge companies that mm. will supply. Uh, this is, I mean, Michael. You know, yesterday, as I said, it was momentous. Mm. This is going to be very, very, very big, mm. very, very big over the next few years. Yeah, uh, well, you know, it has potential to be very big. Yeah, the minister was talking about licensing uh, people to grow cannabis here as well. Yeah, yeah, mm. I think that's going to happen because uh, mm. Ireland's uh, the environment and kind of climate is actually very, very good to grow cannabis, uh, mm. and some people grow illegally and so forth. So, uh, yeah, there's potential for that. Um, but at the moment, obviously, it's going to be imported. But mm. hopefully, in the future, it can be. Uh, you, you mentioned here. Denmark. The minister was talking about Denmark, uh, yeah. uh, and they're growing it uh, because uh, the quality is better. Yeah, yeah, and I think Ireland has potential to do that. Mm. At, not at the moment. There's obviously uh, there are people that are growing um, hemp and kind of uh, mm. hemp plant, um, but I think we're a little bit. behind but I think it'll be maybe not so long that Ireland can produce its own uh, cannabis uh, based products for not only Irish patients but other patients across Europe so Mm. this has the potential to be very 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 big and it's significant as in you know cannabis based products are now rescheduled and compared to where we were Michael and I know I've spoke to you many Mm. times in this program uh, where we were three years ago was nowhere in this issue, absolutely nowhere. Mm. Uh, this wasn't. It was a complete taboo um, subject. So it's good. Yeah. It's good. Uh, it's good. It doesn't go far enough, to, you know, um, yeah. for what we want to see. But, but it uh, is the first step towards what you want to see. Which oh it, yeah, it, uh, the yeah, first yeah, step. Yeah. 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 I, I, I mean, if I'm prescribed cannabis because of my epilepsy, let's say, uh, and uh, you're in the house having a cup of tea with me, I might ask you if you want to share the joint with me. Well. <sighs> Well, that's a bit kind of crude the way, you know, you put it, you know. Well, Obviously, it's people, just well, a bit realistic, isn't it, though, you know? Well, no, well... It might feel uh, rude not to ask. No, that's been flipping, Michael, now, I'll be honest. No, no, it's not. No, no that's been flipping. No, now, it's not on. being... It's no, it's very flipping. Now, you're making Why? kind of... You're being flippant about a very, very serious subject. No, I'm right? not. You're, no, you're being very flippant, I'm sorry. This is, you know... Uh, uh, and, uh, when it comes to epilepsy, won't, they won't, people won't be prescribed you know, cannabis herb. It won't be. That won't happen. It would be CBD. Okay, well, that's a different debate, like, you know. Well, forgive my uh, ignorance in terms of what would be prescribed. But, I mean, as you were saying, some people would be described oil, some people would be described, so, yeah. prescribed uh, the herb and whatever, uh, depending yeah. on their illness. So I, I'm not yeah. sure. But, but you know, there, there, there will be, it'll be very hard to quantify how much somebody will have. Uh, and cannabis will be legally available in this country and I suppose that's yeah. the point of putting it to you and I really don't mean to be flippant. No, no, mean, I know I, and you've been good, quite good on this subject over the last... I, I, you know, I, 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 I mean to be realistic about it. Yeah, no. You know, yeah, we, we, we have farms around the corner growing cannabis, we have people yeah. legally taking cannabis. I mean, the next step is obvious, is it not? Well, it's a different debate, like, you know, and somewhere down the line we're going to have that debate. That mm. debate is ongoing about recreation use. Uh, today is about the medical use of cannabis and... Uh, you know, it's been rescheduled and it can be prescribed by an Irish doctor and collected by um, a patient in Ireland. 
So that's going to happen. Um, you're al- you'll also have the parallel of a licensing system. Um, mm. now 21 licenses have been granted so far. So the vast majority of them for, have been for um, you know, patients with epilepsy. Now, mm. they still have to travel abroad uh, every three months. Now, you would envisage that the people on them licenses could um, transfer into the, the medical access program. Yeah. Um, and the thing about the medical access program as well, it will be reimbursed under the long-term illness scheme and medical card. So mm. it's, 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 it's a huge step. As I said, it, hasn't, it does not go far enough, particularly around stipulations of chronic pain. But uh, the door is opened and um, the light is shining through. And, you know, hopefully, and I, I know that this is going to make a huge difference to people. That oh, have, and it will. Uh, oh, it will. It will, Michael, you uh, know, and it will. And I understand why you thought I was being flippant if you thought I was trying to confuse that issue because we see people who are, who are really uh, in need of this medicine who yeah. are suffering terribly from seizures and so on and how it yeah. can change that overnight. Yeah. How, how many people do you think, is it possible to estimate how many people would be entitled to have it prescribed for them uh, under these three categories? It's, it's di- difficult to quantify. Difficult. I think in Denmark... The problem they had was just um, too few patients uh, because I think doctors are quite kind of are extremely cautious, extremely cautious. And the way they would put it is that it's compelling but not convincing uh, the evidence. Now that can be you know that can be debated, um, but I think more the more confidence uh, doctors and consultants get, particularly around that the framework around the access programme, that they're un- it's underpinned by legislation. I think the chill factor will be, I'm not saying largely gone, mm. but has eased to a, f- to a point where doctors now will feel a bit more confident of prescribing it. To quantify the numbers, it's difficult. It's difficult, but mm. I would envisage that it will have, um, I think over the period of the five-year programme, it will uh, be prescribed to thousands of people. Mm-hmm. And if they introduce chronic pain, that could run to tens of thousands of people, mm. tens okay. of thousands of people over the five-year program. Mm. Um, so it has potential to be mm. enormous. Okay, Gino, we leave it there for the moment. Thank you very much indeed for joining Thanks, us. Today. Thank you, Gino Kenny, people before profit TD for Dublin Midwest. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now let's find out what you've been saying to us. Marie Kearns joins us with some of the calls and text messages that have been coming to us this morning. Good morning, Shea Marie. Good morning. Seamus from Dundalk phoned in. Before we get involved in any kind of battle group, should there not be a referendum, Michael? Ireland is neutral. That is what ordinary citizens voted for previously and feels that this is a worrying step. Mm. Well, we did have a, a referendum and the assurance was uh, that there would be this triple lock which would have to be achieved uh, and we've uh, entered into a United Nations programme which is the mm-hmm. first lock. It was approved by the government which is the second lock and the doll then voted in favour of it which was the third lock. What is the government playing at, Ronnie wants to know? Being involved in a battle group, I feel, sends out the wrong message in relation to Ireland's position. Uh, another listener, I don't mind Ireland continuing its peacekeeping forces, as it has always done, but not in favour of being associated with any army, uh, not in favour of a European army. Mm. We are neutral for a reason. OK, or enforcing peace. <laughs> carers. Uh, we've had a couple of calls in, in relation to that mm. and reaction. Uh, Kathleen says, Michael, the hardest thing in the world is caring for a loved one. Yeah. So few supports are available and a lot is expected of you. It can be the loneliest job 
in the world. Mm. A lot of carers do uh, look after somebody as well as trying to hold down a full-time job, Michael, because they can't afford to give it up when they don't qualify Mm. for uh, the support allowance and says it is a very tough job to do to doing this but many feel that they want to try and look after maybe a parent uh, rather than have them go into a nursing home or an institution yeah. of some sort yes. uh, and uh, I think that's uh, the point uh, that Catherine was making that the yes. means test means uh, that people uh, can't work or can't go into education uh, there's lots of uh, prohibitions if uh, your income is above uh, the means test for that matter a tweet from a listener responding to the call for complete overhaul of the means testing system for carers says, I couldn't agree with this more. Surely there should be more transparency on how means tests are carried out. What is the criteria for people who qualify and those who don't? Granted, it's not black and white, but some indication might be helpful. Mm. Well, there's a, a carer's allowance and uh, it's uh, an income uh, above a, a certain uh, threshold uh, that uh, disqualifies you. And there's a, a part carer's allowance then uh, as well. Uh, but uh, you, if you're on social welfare, you can have the carer's allowance on top of that. And uh, the income level uh, is, is relatively high, some would say. Uh, but uh, because of the nature of caring for people, there are other factors that come on top of the allowance, such as the bus pass, uh, the medical aids, the incontinence pads, uh, the uh, different things uh, that people spend on parking, going to hospitals and different costs associated with caring for people. Another listener says, my sister uh, gave up her job, Michael, to look after our father in the home. Uh, We were all so appreciative of what she did, but it's a huge responsibility and when you give up a job, the carer's allowance is very little mm. in comparison to what you're giving well, up. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mary agrees that means test needs to be looked at. If the carers weren't providing the care, then the patients would end up being looked after by the state and would cost a lot more. Well, that's uh, that 10,000 million yes, that Catherine yeah. was talking about. Uh, 10 billion euro, the carers estimate uh, they're saving the state. John phoned in, not in relation to this, but in relation to the weather. Mm. Uh, John from Navin says, the first. Cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.
time in my lifetime, Michael, that I've ever heard them issuing a weather warning about the sunny weather. Normally it's about the ice or the snow Mm. and goes on then to talk about global warming and the plans for the government with their climate change plan and says that a lot of people have been critical of the plan but says that only recently thousands of students took to the streets protesting that nothing was being done about climate change and everyone was giving out and Mm. now a plan is put in place and people are still complaining and Mm. giving out. So he says you can't please everyone. But his point is that everybody is going to have to play their part or else we'll face hundreds of millions uh, in euros of fines and people will end up having to pay for it anyway one okay. way or the other Yeah okay well I, I have seen uh, weather warnings about the heat in the past uh, many times over recent years uh, I suppose uh, but uh, I, I think uh, there has been a, a lot of concern about the plan because uh, the plan is short on detail uh, mm. and uh, there's a, a lot of uh, good intentions, if you like. How to realise those intentions uh, is not costed, funded or set out in a concrete plan. On the climate change plan, David says that he thinks it's going to be one of those plans, Michael, that has loads of information and sounds fantastic on paper, but that it'll probably just gather dust like lots of other plans. (laughs) <laughs> Which plan was that? The climate change plan? Yes. Okay, right, okay. <laughs> well, it may do. Um, oh yeah, Margaret was in touch regarding the electric cars and says, Michael, I'm just wondering what is going to be put in place if they are expecting people to drive electric cars in the future. Is it a case that the government will fund these charging uh, facilities in people's homes? How will people be able to afford this? It seems very far-stretched, says, far-fetched even, says Margaret. (laughs) Well, it does at the moment, but I I suppose uh, the idea of uh, being able to shop at home and uh, the goods arrive in your door uh, at the press of a a button many years ago would have seemed uh, like a a fantasy. Now we do that and an awful lot more uh, on the internet on an ongoing basis. Hold that thought though for a moment uh, because uh, we're going to speak with uh, the one organisation. This is the organisation of National Ex-Service Personnel which launches its annual Future Appeal today to uh, help uh, fund One Hostels for Homeless Veterans and uh, we're joined by Colm Campbell who's uh, the chair of One Good morning to you, Colm, and thanks for joining us. Uh, You've uh, been dealing with a a lot of people, 900 homeless veterans over the course of uh, the last number of years. Good morning, and thank you very much for having us on the show. Yes, um, our our first homeless hostels opened in response to the deaths on Dublin streets of three veterans. And uh, that was the catalyst for opening the homes. And we have three homes now, one in Dublin, which has 30 bedrooms, one in Letterkenny, which has seven, and one in Athlone, which has seven as well. And in addition to those, we're um, establishing 14 veteran support centres nationwide, based on the model, really, that started in Dundalk County Loud. Right, uh, and tell us more about uh, that model in Dundalk. The model in Dundalk, is a, a veteran support centre could be described, I suppose, as a cross between a, an advice centre and a men's a bleed stroke women's shed. Um, it's a place, if you want to just go to, to meet somebody for a cup of tea, that's fine. But if you want to go and get advice on, you know, pensions, housing, etc., etc., that's fine too. 
So it's, it's very much up to the person, but they're typically open mm. uh, about 20 hours a week, manned by volunteers, and there's a contact number normally available in them as well. You know, if somebody mm. wants to contact them out of those hours. Uh, and what has your experience of uh, the veterans coming to that uh, centre in Dundalk been? Is it that they're looking uh, to socialise, uh, looking for some company, or are they looking for advice? Both. Um, veterans typically will take advice from former veterans better than than somebody else. And I think that's that's true of many communities. Like farmers will take better advice from farmers than somebody else. Um, there are people with the same, their same culture, same background, same experience, and, and they get on well together. So we find, uh, in some cases, um, elderly veterans particularly simply want to meet somebody. But, uh, you know, other things, they have, people have issues uh, emanating some of them from their military service, but also from, from life in general. Uh, and is it a particularly vulnerable group of people or are they more at risk of becoming homeless than others? I, I'm, I'm not sure that that's the case. Um, but very much, you know, any, uh, you know, we feel we have a responsibility for our fellow veteran. And the veterans we help don't have to be members of ONE. Uh, they can be any Irish veteran across the country. Um, veterans like society in general, I suppose the biggest cause for homelessness is family breakup. And if you can think of a veteran who started on a relatively poor salary, um, resulting then in a relatively poor pension, and if their family breakup, you know, a fraction of that again, mm. so very difficult for them to provide accommodation for themselves. Okay, my uh, apologies, Colm. I, I had said one. You said ONE, is it? ONE, sorry, it's, it's an acronym. It's just the organisation. ONE, is it? Like service personnel. Okay. But one is good mm-hmm. as well because it brings people together. Okay. Uh, and uh, is it uh, possible that uh, because they have been members of uh, the Defence Forces uh, that they lost some of uh, the skills, let's say, that people would have uh, held on to because they had been civilians all of their lives? I'm not sure of that. I, I think, um, you know, from members of the Defence Forces and indeed former men- members of the Defence Forces have great skills. But, but things happen to people in life. Um, it's very difficult to, um, you know, put homelessness down to a single cause or a single issue. Um, every case we come across is different. But what can happen with military services that you tend to become or can become institutionalised. Mm. Um, if you were in the Defence Forces all your life, and perhaps you never got married and you were living in military accommodation for 30, 40 years, mm. it's not surprising that you may struggle when you retire or move on from military life. Mm, Maybe that's what I I was suggesting in a a different way. Uh, Not uh, that they've lost skills, but their skills are are different to those that civilians have, for example. Absolutely. I couldn't couldn't but agree with you. Okay, and I take it as well with members of the Defence Forces, uh, there's a a level of pride that might be higher than you'd find amongst civilians. It's it's a wonderful point because, uh, and that pride um, I suppose stops them uh, going to other sources for help whereas they will talk to a fellow veteran about their issues they may be too proud actually to go somewhere else looking for help mm. OK well if people wish to make a, a donation uh, they can do so on oneconnect.ie or sleepingflags.ie uh, and I'm sure people can make contact with you if they are looking for help or for company for that matter uh, former veterans uh, that is uh, if uh, they wish to make contact uh, they can do so through uh, your website 
Absolutely, absolutely. And I, and I thank you very much for having us on this morning. Um, we, our funding, you know, we, it takes approximately a million euro to run what we want to run in the future. Um, we need to raise about 650,000 of that through, through various sources. And any money we get would be greatly welcome. Okay, and the Fuchsia Appeal runs over the month of July. Thank you. Thank you indeed. Colm Campbell, Chair of One or ONE, the Organisation of uh, the National Ex-Service Personnel. Now, let's go back uh, to some more of uh, the calls uh, that came to us uh, this morning. What else have we got there, Marie? I have a comment from Catherine. We'll finish up on this one. And she says, in relation to the the strike yesterday by the hospital support workers, that on one hand, she understands why why the workers uh, feel that they needed to take strike action but on the other she hates to see patients suffering and she says any strike at a hospital despite the best will in the world will impact on patients and that she hopes further strikes don't happen and that talks will result in a resolution. Let's hope so. Thanks uh, for that and thanks Marie for bringing us uh, those calls this morning as always. If you'd like to add to what's been said our telephone number is 1857 Michael Reed on LMFM now, as you've been hearing on LMFM's news, Sinn Féin's Melda Munster is introducing a bill which would stop nursing home charges for medical card items and services. Uh, Melda Munster is on the line with us and a very good morning to you and thanks for joining us. Why is this bill, this legislation necessary? Didn't uh, the Consumer Protection Commission, uh, the Competition and Consumer Protection Commission write to all nursing homes two months ago to tell them to stop doing this sort of thing? Well, firstly, um, as you know, it's an ongoing issue in private nursing homes, Mike, um, where patients have been charged for <coughs> items and services mm. that they're entitled to, perfectly entitled to free of charge under their medical card. And, you know, um, items such as basic wound dressings and painkillers, bed sore creams and other services like physiotherapy, speech and language and occupational mm. therapy. Mass. Now, sorry? Mass. I beg your pardon? Mass. Sometimes... Oh, right. Yeah, Sorry, I, beg I, I, I know it's not under the, the, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the medical <laughs> items, but I mean, sure. patients are charged for all sorts of interesting things, yes, uh, yes, including yes. seeing a doctor sometimes. Yes, yeah. Now, um, if you go think about it, these contracts are made up by lawyers and solicitors mm. and barristers for the nursing homes. And whilst the, 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 the Competition and Consumer Protection Commission have issued guidelines, mm. guidelines are just we would like you to behave. They're not a statutory instrument. They're not primary legislation. And whilst the guidelines themselves have legal standing, mm. but uh, the commission itself can't force individual homes. But that was two um, months to, ago, to wasn't alter, it? I mean, alter, yeah, sorry? It, t- that was two months ago that the commission yes. wrote to all of the nursing homes in the country telling them that this was wrong and they shouldn't be doing it. Yes, and it's been going on for years, you know. So the bill is about, firstly, <coughs> there's two aspects to it. The minister... Mm. Well, the bill is about the minister bringing in bringing clarity by introducing um, new regulations to ensure that those people that are in receipt of their medical card retain all the benefits of that card when they're a resident of a nursing home. Mm. And that's the problem. That's currently not happening in practice. And it's an ongoing issue with charges. And the other aspect is that the bill will um, mandate the Competition and Consumer Protection Commission to investigate individual cases mm. around issues with contracts between nursing homes and residents when there's a complaint made. 
um, you know, the, the Commission already has powers to investigate cases, but only, only certain types of cases, and they're mainly to do with competition issues. So this bill simply adds nursing home contracts to the list of areas that the Consumer Protection Commission shall investigate. And the problem, the main problem at the moment, and having spoken to numerous families, is that there's no one to bring cases to for mm. investigation. So the bill will give the CCPC the power to investigate complaints. Okay. Uh, how the long logic this? behind that well, is it? Well, there is, obviously, yeah. But, I, I mean, as I say, uh, this was an issue. You, you raised it as an issue a, a few months ago. The Competition and Consumer Protection Commission, the CCPC that you're talking about now, uh, took action in so far as it could and that it wrote to the nursing homes uh, and two months on obviously uh, it, it's still happening uh, mm-hmm. you've been talking in your press release about uh, an elderly resident billed over two and a half thousand euro over 15 months for uh, issues or items that should have been free of charge to them because they had a medical card so it's yeah. still a, a problem so when will it be fixed or how long will it well, take for this it. legislation I'm to go through? I'm hoping now um, if the bill is passed in the Dáil I would hope Hope to God that all parties support it because um, what's going on at the moment is totally unacceptable. And I've had numerous families. And when I first raised it first, um, it's so it's becoming more widespread because when I first raised it um, initially, mm. I was contacted by people all over the state. And they had said, you know, when they, mm. the family tried to complain that they're literally told, oh, if you don't like our services, you can go elsewhere. Mm, mm, so mm. that's the kind of attitude. And when people are choosing... A, a a nursing home for a relative they're under pressure as it is you know to secure a place and the contracts can be so um kind of confusing and Mm. you know they're legal binding contracts and people don't necessarily um realize what they're signing up to but the law of the land and this what it it comes back to the law of the land is if you are in receipt of a medical card you're entitled to the same entitlement yeah. whether you live ordinarily in the community or you're in a nursing home. So who, who will pay the difference, do you think? Well, the, the, I mean, the, if you're entitled onto the medical card, mm. it's the HSE. It's no more than if you, you're living at home and you have your medical card, you get your prescription from your doctor mm. and you go up to the chemist mm. and you get your, your medication and mm. you apply... But are, are the nursing homes not charging on top of that? They're charging for additional stuff, yeah. You yeah. might have so, your So who paid the difference? Because the nursing well, homes say they're not getting enough under the fair deal scheme. No, that's, that's, where, that's where the first part of the bill comes in, that the minister brings clarity by introducing new regulations to make sure that no matter what you're, you're, mm. you're, you're in, you, know, yeah. you need in a nursing home, the same as if you lived at home. No, I know, your but they increase their there, fees, so you know... But you see... Somebody has to pay it. Uh, well, but you're, it's the HSE because they pay it whether if they pay it when you're living at home, yeah. or in your community, then the same thing applies. You can't just. But are, are they not paying it now anyway? Uh, and the well, patient the is paying on top of that. Well, that's that's the question. Yeah. So who the pays the difference? That, is the question. Well, the question is the HSE pay because even if there is an item. Well, that's then that's more covered, money going into fair deal, isn't it? No, no. The HSE mm. would pay under the medical card scheme. That's the whole idea of this. And even if there's something right that's not mm. not under the medical card, say a particular type, you know, of wound dressing, say a specialised type of wound dressing or something, mm-hmm. they they can make an application under the hardship scheme either through the pharmacies or the HSE, 
for that product and they can get it free of charge, the same as they could do if they're living at home. And they're not doing that. They're billing the patient. Mm. But creams, medicated creams like bed sores and wound, they're all covered. So there's no need for people to be charged. And, you know, the same thing comes when people try to complain, say, no, but sure, when my mother or my father were at home, they were getting these items free of charge. Then they're told, oh, if you don't like our services, you can go elsewhere. Mm. Okay, but if there's a a difference, if more is being paid, somebody has to pay the difference. Uh, But uh, hopefully this will make it fairer for those who are relying on nursing homes to care for their loved ones or for their own care, as the case may be. Uh, Let me ask you... for a second about the feud uh, because I know uh, you raised uh, the ongoing criminal gang feud in Drogheda in the Dáil yesterday in the latest mm-hmm. shooting in Termin Abbey and you were asking the Taoiseach uh, about that shooting and if people had been under surveillance 24-7 would it have happened and if they had been under surveillance I, I think you said then others wouldn't have been put a- at risk and uh, we'll just hear the Taoiseach's response to that now. Thanks Stephanie I think like everyone in this house I'm very concerned about the uh, developing situation uh, in Drada. Additional Guardi and Guard resources have been provided, uh, and I'd ask people to uh, support the Guardi in their work to provide any information to the Guardi that they have. Um, and I want to thank the Guardi for the excellent uh, job that they are doing. Uh, any decisions, though, on the deployment of for- further resources or 24 hour surveillance uh, it is a matter and should be a matter for the Guardi Commissioner. Well, that was a, a disappointing response, was it? Well, I actually made it my business then because, as, as it so happens, the um, Commissioner Harris was in with the Justice Committee last night. Um, We were there till nine o'clock, but I went into the committee and I put it straight to him because I knew the usual fob off from the minister or the Taoiseach, you know, was um, predictable almost. But so I went into the the commissioner myself and I raised the exact same issue. And I again, I had said, you know, if this hadn't have, if there was 24 hour surveillance Mm. and there's every chance that residents wouldn't have had to... um, bear the brunt of, of witnessing that happening, you know, or they would have been spared the horror and the fear um, of criminals attempting to assassinate each other on their doorstep. But I'd said about the need for the 24-hour surveillance and um, he had said, he's going to revert to me on it. I had said, look, we have this kicked off last July. Only three weeks ago, we got 25 additional resources. And I acknowledge the fact that the guards were making arrests making arrests over the last number of weeks, but that it was going nowhere unless we could literally, you know, have this extra bit of resources for that sort of 24-hour surveillance. And um, he he had said that it's certainly an issue. He will uh, revert to me on it. So I got a little bit more. Now, that's not a definitive answer as yet, but he was a little bit more um, receptive and he acknowledged, um, you know, when I had said this, there's every chance that that wouldn't have happened had they been tailed. Um, you know, so I'll wait and see what he comes back with. But okay. I said, you know, I'll accept that response for now till he reverts to me, but I'll be back at it if he doesn't. You okay. know, it's not satisfactory. But just in relation to the bill, Mike, it actually, it, it represents much needed consumer protection in this area that has been mm. lacking to date. You know, and when when relatives, family members go into a home, a nursing home, that's, that's now their home, you know, mm. and not only are they entitled to feel safe, but they've also a right to get the same entitlements under their medical card yeah. as if they were living at home. So the bill will yeah. make sure that this now happens in practice. No, I don't families, think, yeah. rather than having having to, you know, having no one to bring cases to for investigation and not having the money, or you wouldn't expect them to, mm-hmm. um, 
bring a case for six or seven grand to a court. The logic is the CPC are sending out guidelines. They should be the body to investigate and bring cases to court if need okay. be. Okay, I have to leave there. Thank you very much indeed for joining us uh, this morning. Sinn Féin TD for Louth and Melda Munster. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now let's talk about uh, the government's uh, summer economic uh, statement uh, with uh, the Minister of State for Finance, Public Expenditure and uh, Reform, Patrick O'Donovan, who's a Fine Gael TD for Limerick and on the line with us. Good morning, Minister, and uh, thanks uh, for joining us on the programme. Uh, there's uh, a case of uh, Brexit or uh, a disorderly Brexit or a planned Brexit uh, and uh, two different outcomes depending on what happens come Halloween. Yeah, I suppose look, <clears throat> what we've done is we've um, tried to lay out the parameters of what is going to happen um, uh, or what's likely to happen in October. And we've done so really by looking at where we are now. Where we are now is an economy that's growing very steadily. Uh, the lowest unemployment rate ever, uh, 2.2 million people at work uh, and the public finances under control. So the summary economic statement kind of gives you a view as to wh- where you're standing and wh- where you'll get to. So where we'll get to is a position where we have a two-scenario case in one budget. We'll spend approximately 69 billion euros in the budget, and we'll increase our spending <clears throat> by about uh, 2.8 billion. So th- these are massive numbers, and uh, they're massive numbers, um, and you know the spending will affect um, and affects all ranges uh, of public expenditure over you know a massive range of issues. And 700 so, million out of that 2.8 billion in question because of uh, the two scenarios. 700 million is uncommitted. Uh, so regardless mm. of the two scenarios, what we're going to do is we're going to have an additional uh, amount of expenditure of 2.8 billion, 700 million um, to be decided um, now between now uh, and October. The Minister for Finance will engage with his colleagues um, and as well as that, he will also engage with interest groups who, who come to the department on a yearly basis and set out their stall for increases in expenditure. So that will be made in, in one of two ways. We will run a budget surplus if the United Kingdom um, you know, leaves in an orderly fashion or doesn't leave at all. And we will run a, a deficit uh, if they leave in a disorderly fashion. Mm. And what we have done is we have built in a ceiling. Of up to five billion. Yeah, we've built mm. in a ceiling and a floor. Um, so, you know, in, in, in the event that they stay... Um, you, we'll have a surplus that will equate to approximately 1.3 billion, and if they leave, uh, we have a deficit of approximately um, 5 billion. So mm. there's a there's a floor to ceiling there of of about 6 billion. And uh, is, so is the government willing to spend that 700 million or part of that 700 million on tax cuts in the event of a hard Brexit, a disorderly we Brexit? We haven't decided any of that yet because what we are literally laying out are the parameters of expenditure. Uh, and the decisions that the mm. Minister for Finance will make uh, will be made in reflection as to where we get closer to September. And he said that in publishing the economic statement the other day, um, because by September we will have a better outlook. And as well as that, you know, we, we have a number of factors. We're going to have a new British Prime Minister. We're going to have a new President of the European Commission as a result of European elections. We're going to have a new President of the EU Council. Mm. And we're going to have a new European Parliament. So... It's coming at, like, and this is not ideal because our budget has to be, as well as that, we have a legal requirement that our budget has to be framed um, by the 8th of October so that it can be communicated to the Eurogroup as all other Eurogroup countries have to um, abide with. So the timing isn't ideal. In fact, the timing is, 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 isn't great at all and that all of these things are culminating together. Uh, but we are where we are and it's on that basis that we have forecast out um, as a department 
uh, with a significant cushion, so a floor to ceiling of about six billion that will accommodate us to be able to increase expenditure um, in 2020 by 2.8 billion, 700 million of which is to be decided. And can those figures uh, be looked on credibly given uh, the level of ineptitude in government forecasting on spending in recent times? Well, I wouldn't say there's an aptitude when you're running a budget surplus and when you have 2.2 million people at work and you have the mm. public finances under control. Well, when you look at the National Children's Hospital, for example, uh, surely that uh, took you by surprise? The National Children's Hospital is, is capital expenditure and you yes. know, all of the other projects that we have run uh, in, the, in the recent past, whether it is the Enniscarty Bypass, New Ross Bypass, schools, mm. primary care centres... Uh, investments across the country in motorway network and uh, even the um, the Lewis Cross City, all on target and all uh, in budget. We have said as a government that there's a problem in the National Children's Hospital and we've put up our hands there and the Minister for Finance mm. has said that he takes you know that issue seriously. Okay, my broadband. Own, own. Broadband. I mean, what were we going to spend on broadband? 500 million and then uh, it was suddenly 3 billion and no, uh, now you're saying, well, well, maybe we better look at this again because maybe we can do it for 1 billion. Two totally different projects. Um, broadband for 500 million was a proposal that was made for the Minister for Communications, where uh, essentially broadband would be brought to the middle of a village, in the middle of a village in County Mead or County Loud, and everybody okay. didn't fit for themselves. Okay, well, you were, going, you, were going, you were going to deliver broadband to a man living on the edge of a cliff last month uh, for, a cause, for, for a cost of three billion, uh, and now you're saying, well, Jenny, maybe we shouldn't have done that, we won't be able to no, do it for one billion. We're not, we're not saying that at all. What we are saying is that there's a company that dropped out of the, of yeah, the competition uh, and are now saying that they can deliver it for cheaper, and what mm. we're saying is the government, well, if you can, show us, because previously uh, they had said that they were going to bring the cable along the road and everybody would have to connect themselves. Mm. What we want to do is connect everybody. We don't believe that somebody in Drogheda Town Centre should be treated any differently to somebody on the Cooley Peninsula that would have a difficulty because of their location. In the same way as we believe that bringing electricity to everybody's house is you know, absolutely a prerequisite in 2019, so is broadband. I know that Fianna Fáil, for instance, wanted to bring it to the middle of the village and everybody else would have to fend for themselves, like a group water scheme. Mm. People out in rural areas are paying for enough, and we said as a government that we want to treat everybody in rural areas and in urban areas. Yeah, but, 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 if, a company, if a company is now coming forward yeah. uh, who dropped out of the competition process yeah. uh, because they couldn't do it and are now saying they can do it for cheaper, the Minister and the Taoiseach actually said in the Dáil yesterday he'd be interested to hear how they can do that. Okay, well, I think that speaks for itself. What about uh, the overrun in health? Health is a demand-led uh, service, and even today, you know, we have uh, the, the situation where uh, health workers are hopefully going to mm. resolve the situation where they are in the WRC. Every single day, and I'm in the, the Department of Public Expenditure and Reform, that we take doll questions, there are increased demands from everybody for increased expenditure in health because of our demographics, because we have young children to be born mm. every day. We have increasing demands for, you know, a whole range of issues for young people, and the same in relation to elderly people. What I haven't heard is I haven't heard anyone in opposition saying we shouldn't continue to deliver the services that we're delivering. Nor have I said I've heard anybody in opposition identify the areas in which we should cut. But what I have heard from opposition spokespersons and commentators and radio programs across the country is we need more and we need more and we need more. It's a demand-led service. We've never spent more money in health. We have challenges. Mm. There's a new director but general spending, of the HSE. You're, you're probably going to spend $500 million more than you had set out to spend. Uh, and, the new, and the new C Director General of the HSE has written, to the H, has written to every element of the HSE and said he wants to bring budgets under control. Mm. And what's the first thing that happens? The opposition criticise him. 
So, I mean, this is a bit of cake and eat. Well, I'm not asking about the opposition. I'm asking how credible government forecasts I'm, are I'm when you're five... Like, I mean, you're talking about spending two billion and you're about a quarter of that amount over on what uh, you had intended to spend on health. The credibility, the credibility of any government is, is judged on how it looks after people and the credibility of any government is... By cutting home, home help. But there you go. I mean, the demand-led services, we have an increasing number of people that are requiring services and it's a demand-led service. If we don't increase expenditure in health, which, we have, which mm. we've had to do over the last number of years, how much worse would the home health situation be? How much worse would the respite situation be? Mm. How much worse would all of the acute services be? So we are responding. It's a massive problem. Um, but I think, you know, when people tell us on the one hand that we're spending too much and then look for additional services, that's where the credibility issue mm, is. But then people come knocking on your door and they ask for a, a pay increase and you go, no, 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 yes. Uh, as, no, you, uh, uh, as you did many times over. No, we and on the other hand, Minister, you agreed last August to a pay increase of €16.2 million euro, and you welched on it. No, we don't do no, 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 yes. We have a public se- sector stability agreement where all of these issues are worked on and the Minister for Finance has said very clearly, and it's particularly in the context of the choppy waters that we're going into at the moment, uh, if we were to do the no, 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 yes routine, then the country would collapse in a heap. We have a public sector stability agreement. There is machinery within the the state, the Workplace Relations Commission, Mm. the Labour Court. Uh, All of these issues up to now have been resolved there. And the Minister for Finance has said as recently as last night, and so has the Taoiseach, that there is still the option of the Labour Court. And as a government, we're willing and waiting to go into the Labour Court, but we need all sides to go in there. And the Taoiseach has already said that whatever is found in the Labour Court in relation to this particular issue, the government will abide by it. Well, why not abide by what you already agreed to through the Workplace Relations Commission? Because the government and the employer have already said that the commencement dates, uh, as far as the employer were concerned, were not agreed. So now we have an element, a a machinery of the state in relation to the labour issues that is still not being used. And I think for people outside listening to this, they're probably Mm. wondering, you know, how do we resolve this issue? Because these are very important workers. The health service relies on them and they're absolutely fundamental for the working of the health service. The Labour Court is there and I would still appeal, as have other ministers and other radio programmes, for everybody to get into the Labour Court. What about the Circular 1071 that was applied to the agreement by the Workplace Relations Commission, Minister? Look, as the Taoiseach has said yesterday and the Minister for Finance has said in Dáil questions during the week, um, there's an, mm. a, an issue here that has to be resolved. The Workplace Relations Commission brought the issue to stalemate. The Workplace Relations Commission, I suppose, their, their role is to try and bring uh, agreement by, uh, you know, by... Cons- yeah, they mediated they an agreement between... They mediate, but they don't make the, the government. Uh, they don't make the termination. The arms the of the government court. on this occasion were the HSE and the Department of Health yeah, and the and trade union SIPTU. And, uh, uh, and they applied a circular 1071 to that agreement, which applies to pay and promotion for individuals uh, and is not applicable for rebanding entire grades, but it would result in a common increment date from the date of application, uh, which would have been a month after the staff were rebanded, which was last August. These people should have been entitled to their pay last September, but the government didn't even uh, account for that uh, when it was budgeting uh, in the, uh, the, uh, the statements of October last year. And in relation to the issue that I came on the show to talk about, the summary economic statement, yes. one of the issues, that is one of the issues that the government has identified in relation to potential threats of the economic stability into the future, which are pay demands. 
we have machinery of the state available to, to, to determine this particular issue. And mm. I think this particular issue is, only, is not going to be resolved over the airwaves. This particular issue is only going to be resolved... With OK, the, excuse me, Minister, when, when you say you were asked to come on, or well, you, I think Fine Gael asked us to, to bring somebody on to talk yeah, about the summer and, economic and, segment, you know, but, but when, when you say that, are you suggesting that the, the, this is a separate subject? No, uh, because I would no, imagine I it would be no included because, in the summer economic statement and probably should have been included no, in the one of last year, given that the agreement was reached than, last rather August. Than, rather than trying to make my, my comment into something that is not... The public sector stability agreement is a fundamental part of the, of the summary economic statement because it lays out very clearly that one of the, there, there are a number of threats to the Irish economy. Labour shortage, uh, public sector pay is, a, is an issue, uh, and Brexit is the biggest issue. So, but in relation to this particular issue, and I have been asked on numerous occasions over the last number of days, it is appropriate for everybody that wants to get this issue resolved uh, first of all, it's great that they're back in the Workplace Relations Commission and hopefully uh, an agreement can be made there. But it has been stalled up to now. If it looks like it's going to continue to be stalled, then rather than having a situation where we have people who don't want to be outside the gate, and these are critical staff members for the working mm-hmm. of the health services, like other ministers and the Taoiseach, I would appeal that the government is still waiting and the government is still available and the government is willing to accept uh, to go into the Labour Court and abide by the, rec- uh, the determinations that are made there. And that's the most appropriate way in which this issue is going to be resolved. OK, well, there's a, a lot uh, to consider between now and October, obviously. Uh, we leave it there for the moment, though, Minister. Thank you very much indeed for joining us uh, on the programme. Uh, that's Patrick O'Donovan, Fine Gael TD for Limerick and Minister of State for Finance, Public Expenditure and Reform. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, between Wednesday and Saturday of last week, the Irish Council for Civil Liberties met with people who've been involved in protests recently to discuss uh, the right to protest. They also met with members of Angarda Siakana and representatives from oversight bodies. Uh, they've subsequently published a fairly extensive report uh, which outlines uh, the result of these consultations and also a summary of the law in relation to the right to protest in this country. Darren Ainsborough is one of the authors of this report and a senior research and policy officer at the Irish Council for Civil Liberties. And a very good morning to you and thank you indeed for joining us. Maybe you'd begin by telling us about the law because there is a right to protest in this country. Indeed, a constitutional right, a right that's referred to on a number of occasions in the Constitution for that matter. Yes, good morning, Chris. Thank you so much for having me on. Um, Indeed, there is a very strong uh, right to protest in Irish law currently. Now, you you won't see a right to protest in the Constitution. The right to protest actually consists of three different rights, Mm. which is the right to freedom of expression, the right to um, association, which means join with other people, and the right to assembly, which means gather people in, in a public place, essentially. Mm. So we have a good, good, good protection for that in our constitution. We also have protections for it in the European Convention of Human Rights, which is part of our, uh, our law now as well, um, since 2003. Um, the, the real issue is that we have a very extensive Public Order Act in this country, which gives the guards very wide discretion to move people on where they might consider there might be a breach of the peace or where traffic is being blocked. And what we've heard from protesters is that 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 law is being used to actually restrict the right to protest. And it would appear that that's partly a result of of a lack of understanding among among the guards about their duty, in fact, um, to facilitate protest um, and to ensure that protesters are actually protected. So it's a a question of a balance of rights, I suppose you could say, to some degree. Are we achieving a balance or the appropriate balance? 
Um, you could you could consider a balance of rights, but I think it's it's important to 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 to, to recognise that the you know the right to protest is a very strong right, and and the 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 emphasis really should be on on the rights of protesters to um, gather and express their concerns in a public place. Um, there, it's true that there is, uh, you know, a, a, a limitation to that right. I mean, mm. the guards certainly do have a have a right to to interfere with the right to protest. Where, well, for example, uh, there's violence. Well, of course, you don't have the right to breach the peace. Uh, uh, but if uh, the authority that the guardie have to move somebody on for fear of breaching the peace is being breached, that's a different thing. Well, exactly. I mean, the the the, the point is the Public Order Act was designed to prevent, you know, disorder, mm. um, random and arbitrary disorder, you know, potentially on a Saturday night or something. And what we're seeing is that where, where people are, are gathering to express their, their views, where they're, they're expressing their concerns, that the guards are, are, are interfering using the Public Order Act, but in a way that isn't in accordance with the, with the, right, the right to protest. So, um, you know, the, it's very important that the guards understand that the right to protest isn't just about, you know, a march down O'Connell Street, which they're quite good at facilitating. Mm. It's also about protecting, you know, smaller gatherings of protesters, whether it's in rural Ireland or in, you know, lower socioeconomic parts of the, the city where people are protesting evictions or mm-hmm. protesting, you know, the, the use of Shannon Airport by the US military. Like those protests um, are, are actually, they, they are protected by the right to protest just as much as a large march down O'Connell Street. And this is what we found is, is a bit of a disconnect between the, the understanding of the guards uh, in relation to, to their duties and, and, and protests. Okay, you were in Cork, you were in Ennis and you were in Dublin where you held these consultations uh, and regardless of where you were, uh, some people were uh, coming forward with similar complaints. That's right, yeah. I mean, a lot of the protesters we met um, had, had, had very similar stories. Um, some of them were kind of long-standing protesters who would have been in Shannon, who would have been in, in Rossport and County Mayo. Others were, were, were newer protesters who would have been housing activists, you know, here in Dublin or, or uh, up in, um, or down in Cork as well. Mm. And what they were finding was that um, where there are kind of spontaneous protests or, or long-standing protests, particularly on issues that may not have huge public backing, but nevertheless have, um, ha- ha- though it doesn't really matter what idea is being expressed, they, they still have the right to protest. The, um, what we found is, is people are saying that guards are, are intimidating and, and harassing some protesters. Um, we heard that housing activists in Dublin were subject to arrest and um, quite humiliating treatment um, mm. when, when in detention, including um, a strip search. And what we also found was down in, in the West with these more long-standing protesters that the, the protest leaders have been targeted for surveillance, have been followed um, and have also been arrested, you know, and then later released. And we see this as, as behaviour that's designed to, to sort of prevent them from expressing their, their right to protest and to actually dissuade them from continuing. Um, and and what we've also heard... I'm sorry, sorry they, fe- they felt intimidated and harassed by members of, of Angarda Shia because uh, the guards were filming them. We quite often hear complaints in the other direction. Uh, but uh, how do you feel about the idea of these body cams being introduced for members of Angarda Shia if people are concerned about being filmed by phones or whatever they're using at the moment? 
Yes, well, um, it's, I mean, it's clear, international, international standards are quite clear that protesters do have the, the, the right to, to record Gardaí. And when it comes to Gardaí's right to, to record protesters, they're subject to, to actually much more stringent um, rules because they're subject to, um, they, they have a, a duty to uphold the right to privacy. Mm. Now, this is another right that can be, of course, limited. Um, but it, it means that when, 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 there, when there are limits to the right to privacy, it must be done in a very, very restrictive manner. So if body cams are introduced, and, and I understand that the government intends to introduce yeah. legislation to uh, bring about body cameras, it needs to be very, very strictly regulated. So that means knowing exactly where and when um, guards are going to be turning on their body cams, you know, the extent to which they have the power to, to turn it off, because they shouldn't just be allowed, you know, turn them on when they want and turn mm-hmm. them off when they don't want to be caught, you know, doing something that might be questionable. Um, and also, who is retaining that data? So there's, so there's going to be a lot of data collected by these body cameras. Okay. You um, don't oppose them, but you are concerned to, uh, about yes, their use. Okay. That, that's basically okay. our position, yeah. Okay, I have to leave there. Unfortunately, we're out of time, but thank you indeed uh, for joining us uh, this morning. Uh, Duran Ainsborough, Senior Research and Policy Officer with the Irish Council for Civil Liberties and to the co-author of that report brings our programme to its conclusion today. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning, goodbye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.